As members of this community, you know about the Bennington moment, that aha moment that could only happen here in this beautiful place, among these beautiful people, in this atmosphere. Park, yay! <laughs> Park had her first Bennington moment, sitting in orientation. It's a good place to start. Her first day on campus. She was listening to then President Liz Coleman read the Bennington College commencement statement. You'll hear it again tomorrow. And she heard a phrase in it that stuck in her mind. Freedom is not the absence of restraint. She wrote, my Bennington career has been the parsing and unpacking of this one line, not only in terms of my studies, but my life as a whole. If Park arrived in her freshman year thinking of rules as inhibiting forces, as ways of putting people or ways that people put themselves into categories, good and bad, right and wrong, this was her first glimmer of the ways that rules could be creative forces. Rules as frameworks, as boundaries, as vocabularies for expression, and as importantly, as things to subvert or transgress. <laughs> Already an accomplished writer and an avid student of literature, Park's interest in this notion of constrained freedom led her to develop a plan focused on discipline. The discipline involved in the daily practice of writing poetry. She produced a full-length book at the end of her senior year titled Pink. For those of you who don't know her, you'll see why in a minute. <laughs> a reflection on the themes of femininity, intellect, guilt, and shame. The discipline involved in the daily practice of directing a play, How Time Bombs Must Feel, by her classmate, Alan Dupont. Her fieldwork terms included editing poems submitted to the Parnassus Poetry Review, working at Shakespeare and Company Bookstore in Paris, holding herself up during a Vermont winter, a long one, to write poetry every day, working with a literary and dramatic rights agency, and having all kinds of experiences out in the world. These experiences allowed her to cultivate her discipline, both as a personal, private experience and as a public professional one. Now, <clears throat> lest this description sound too serious or intense, those of you who know Park also recognize her ability to find humor and her great sense of comic timing. One of her teachers, Marguerite Filowitz, says that she sees every assignment as an opportunity for adventure. Can't ask for more than that. Park has participated in myriad aspects of student life at Bennington, from her three years working in the admissions office to participating, as she puts it, in, quote, every project she could get her hands on. Whether they be plays or dances or radio shows, she was house chair of Swan, she served on the judicial committee. She has dug deeply into what this place has to offer, and she has given back at least as much, much more. Park wrote, I came to Bennington because I didn't want to just learn how to be a good student. I wanted to learn how to be the best version of myself. Park's embrace of contradiction is quintessential Bennington, seeking creativity through discipline, finding adventure in assignments, and discovering through limits an ability to soar. It is my very great pleasure to introduce the 2015 class speaker, Park Haskell.
I was told there would be a binder, and there is. Hi. Hello. The majority of college students have experienced it. That magical time upon the return home for winter or Thanksgiving or whatever break, when you find yourself suddenly and inexplicably interrogated by your entire extended family about the college experience. You know what I'm talking about. Grandma wants to hijack your Facebook and hot or not, every single person in your class. Auntie May, this is a fictional family, Auntie May requires the details regarding exactly how many hours you spend on your homework each night. Of course, everybody wants to hear about the food, as if their stomachs are somehow directly hooked up to yours and they're scared. Then it gets into the awkward fringe details, they need to know how often you do your laundry, whether or not you use shampoo or conditioner, or perhaps the ineffective but money-saving two-in-one. Or worse, when some random friend of the family tells you that you should enjoy college because it's the quote-unquote best years of your life, and you're like, are you actually condemning the rest of my time on Earth to an inevitable downward spiral? Or is that what you're trying to communicate? Because that's what you're doing, and now I can't feel my extremities, and I'm panicking. So not you know, that I haven't experienced that a couple times. What I'm saying is I think we can agree that for Bennington students, these occasions are on a whole other level. It's like the underwater level of terrible. It seems like every question from the dreaded, what are you majoring in, to what is your roommate like, results in this awkward fight or flight tinged panic, followed by a convoluted discussion of the plan process, followed by an explanation of your roommate's bug exoskeleton collecting hobby for her spirit project before you are, yet again, the target of that all-too-familiar, wide-eyed, vaguely apologetic, slightly horrified stare. Then the consensus. Oh, so you're in some kind of cult? <laughs> Followed by the inevitable question, you realize once you graduate, you're going to have to go into the real world, right? <laughs> Friends, family, colleagues, faculty, staff. In true Bennington spirit, I would like to have a conversation. I think it's time we talk about the real. <laughs> if anybody was concerned with the real, it was French psychoanalyst and psychiatrist Jacques Lacan. Now I'm going to warn you, I'm about, I'm about to butcher this philosophy for the sake of a long-winded extended metaphor. So if there are any Lacanian theorists in the audience, which they're probably are, just please don't tackle me because after finals I'm probably anemic and I will break, so thank you. Great. I am now going to do something that I hate more than anything. I'm not joking, this is actually one of my biggest pet peeves of all time. If I were a professor and a student turned into me a paper where they did this, I would call them into my office tear the offending document into teeny tiny strips and feed it to them. But luckily this is a speech and not a job interview, so. Uh, anyway, what I'm going to do is quote the dictionary. I know, 
I know this is the worst, but you have no choice but to listen to me, so here goes nothing. According to the dictionary, the definition of the word real is actually existing as a thing, whatever that means, or occurring in fact, not imagined or supposed, not imitation or artificial, genuine. So in everyday speech, when we discuss what is real, we are constantly weighing our understanding of what does or does not exist within the realm of human experience. For example, if you, to, if you were to see an alien spacecraft hovering, I guess you really wouldn't because we're in a tent, that would be very strange, but like maybe a little one, like a fair, um, hovering above my head, you might check in with yourself and wonder, is that real? And then you would be cast into a horrible and terrible doubt that maybe you were going insane, and you would check around at the other faces in the audience to see if they were in fact seeing what you were seeing, so that collectively you might validate the occurrence as belonging in the category of reality. This is to say that we're working with a definition that assumes reality has to be shared, but we just don't have time to get into that. Um, <laughs> what I'm talking about is convention. We ask, is this what has come before? Is this what is usually done? Is this contained in my repertoire of comprehension? Can I believe it? Do I buy it? Is it real? Lacan's definition of the real, on the other hand, is pretty much the exact opposite. Based on his theory, the real is not definable, but rather that which emerges outside the confines of language. It's a kind of invisible presence, a boundary whose edge we are always approaching, although we never arrive. It resists representation, symbolization, or consciousness through writing or speech. And I'm quoting here, it is the ineliminable residue of all articulation, the foreclosed element which may be approached but never grasped. It is everything that is not but informs all. Lacan was known to say the real is impossible because anything we try to express with a superficial layer of linguistic signs and symbols marks our irrevocable separation from what we're actually trying to say, which is, in his terms, true reality. But just because that which we cannot describe is invisible does not mean it isn't felt or experienced. What I love about Lacan's vision of the real is that, despite its hidden nature, it continues to exert a constant influence. I associate this phenomenon with the feeling you get when you don't know what to say or how to say it, or when something happens that you can hardly believe, yet you sense its presence. The boundary of convention stretches, and you embark on a journey towards the ever-receding unknown of the real. It is my belief that a Bennington education is, in its essence, an education of the real. In fact, I can assert with full confidence that every single member of this graduating class has come into close and intimate contact with it. So, I feel it is only necessary, on behalf of these fine, accomplished individuals sitting in front of me, on a day of celebration of their well-earned education, to bitch to you a little bit about the plan. Okay. There's water. I'm getting really dry. Okay. For those of you in the audience who aren't aware of the plan process, I'll give you a quick rundown. 
The plan is a document that a Bennington student revises and adapts over their four years. It entails the why of your education, what keeps you up at night, what gets your goat, what drives you to study what you study, where you come from, where you might be going in the future. And not only do you have to attempt to answer these questions, but you then defend your answers a number of times before a committee comprised of faculty members that you look up to and respect more than is probably healthy. <laughs> it's sort of like trying to draw a self-portrait inside a funhouse mirror with a bunch of professionals there to keep you from stabbing yourself in the eye. So. Upon my arrival at Bennington, I wasn't worried. I'd gone through the admissions process, I knew about the plan, and if there was one thing I knew about myself when I arrived here, it was that words were my friends. I took pride in my eloquence. I loved to flex the muscle of my articulation, which my parents can attest to. I devoured coursework in literature, poetry, playwriting, you named it. It seemed that as the months flew by, I grew closer and closer to a true place of linguistic expression. I prized myself on my ability to articulate the inarticulatable, which I recently found out, ironically, is not a word. So when I was asked to write my plan essay, I thought, no sweat, it's three to five pages about what I want to study. I love to learn. I've always been a passionate student. Should be easy enough can't be worse than trying to write about Joyce or Morrison or Melville. I was so wrong. I was so devastatingly wrong. I definitely swallowed a piece of my ego and choked on it the day I sat down to write that thing. So, you know, when you meet a Bennington alum at a party and you strike up a conversation, I'm talking in my class right now because I have no idea what adults do at parties, but you might, <laughs> talk to them about your passions or your plan, your Bennington experience, maybe even your childhood, and they immediately understand exactly where you're coming from and you wonder what made that connection so easy. It's that they, just like you, had to hunker down with their barely post-adolescent selves, take a deep, long look inside, and realize, just like you, that at the center of their being, lies a roaring, vacuous hole of absolutely nothing. <laughs> yes, you graduate high school, you check yes to Bennington, you send in your friggin' deposit, you travel all the way to God knows where, Vermont, you gaze out into the picturesque mountain or whatever happens to be in front of you, you reach down with your mind's claw and dig around within the deepest depths of your being, and you're like, wow, I am a walking human vacuum of despair. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea what I want. I have no idea who I am. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. And I have no idea how to put words around it. But then you just take the plunge and you do it. I think in that critical moment of visceral fear, in that decision not to run from the self, but to choose to walk into it, and not only choosing to walk into it, but choosing to explore it, and not only choosing to explore it, but choosing to learn from that exploration and to embody those lessons, that moment is when you become a Bennington student. And that is what has always 
on what will always continue to impress me about these incredibly capable artists, thinkers, and innovators sitting before me today. They trusted the capital R real part of themselves that even they could not see. And in my opinion, more importantly, they acted as a support system to each other as they journeyed through the quagmire together. Because let's face it, I know for a fact I really couldn't have done it without you all. So let's take this time to applaud these students right now for their aptitude, their tenacity, their determination, and their courage. Okay, stop, stop. You, you can stop now, I'm not, I'm not done. Okay. Uh, Bennington, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart on behalf of all my peers for this formal indoctrination into the real. At its core, the conversation I was semi-forced to have with myself, with that internal unknowability that is the unexpressed Parkaskill, gave me the key to unlock my sense of creative expression. Here, I learned that to be a true artist, a student of the world, whether that be through the stage, the screen, the page, the lab, the analysis, the canvas, you name it, you act as the mediating space between what is spoken and unspoken, what is known and unknown, what rests within the symbolic order and outside. At Bennington, we don't ask questions that already have answers. We are encouraged to reach beyond the realm of the ascertained, to take risks and leap into the very scary real where we do not know at all what will happen, where questions only engender more questions, where nothing has a name. This is why I believe that a Bennington education is the most terrifying and gratifying in the world. We as students intentionally remove ourselves from the outside world of tradition and convention and instead choose to look to the frontier of human understanding and in doing so are required to draw something from the nothing within ourselves. When I wrote my plan, I didn't know what I actually thought. I wasn't sure what I was saying until I said it. Bennington students learn to trust themselves in an entirely different way to accept that we are not going to artificially decide what we think or feel based on social pressure or doctrine, but that we are going to listen very quietly to the subtle tremors of our real selves, the selves with, with which we are not acquainted, the selves that we will our whole lives be in the process of knowing and unknowing, and thereby learn what we in this moment believe. There's a reason why people say, words fail me. As a literature student and a lover of writing, I can tell you, the more you learn how to work with language, the more difficult it becomes. The more you have to say, the harder it is to express. But this difficulty isn't something to be feared. It's where all the real learning is. And I'd like to believe, my friends, that we have trained ourselves and have exposed ourselves enough to that fear that we're ready for the challenge of discovery. When I was still in high school, directing my first play, my teacher said to me, don't focus so much on perfecting the scene. All the real drama is in the transition. And I've held that with me to this day, although it's taken me a long time to accept. It's in the messiness, 
the in-between that we take away the most. And although we may look presentable to you right now, let me tell you, I know firsthand there are no hotter messes than this class right here. <laughs> this is a crazy pack of fools who only four years ago rampaged this campus like wild animals. So you remember that. Don't let the rose-colored glasses gloss over that fact. I think we can safely say we got our hands dirty, and that's the only way to do it. So I know we just got acquainted, or maybe we know each other too well, but I think it's time to wrap things up. You know, so this random person named Glory Steinem can speak? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Just kidding. Where is she? I love you so much. <laughs> so, I'm going to end this by doing another thing I hate in speeches, just to keep with the theme. Um, and I'm going to end on a quote by the one and only writer Flannery O'Connor, and just so you know, I've changed the pronouns of the quote because I just can't respectively say he over and over again, all right? <laughs> so, when asked about the disposition of the modern novelist, this is what she said. People are always complaining that the modern novelist has no hope and that they paint, the picture they paint of the world is unbearable. The only answer to this is that people without hope do not write novels. <laughs> Writing a novel is a terrible experience during which the hair often falls out and the teeth decay. I'm always highly irritated by people who imply that writing fiction is an escape from reality. It is a plunge into reality, and it's very shocking to the system. If the novelist is not sustained by a hope of money, then they must be sustained by a hope of salvation, or they simply won't survive the ordeal. Well, we took the plunge, and our hair may have fallen out, and our teeth may have decayed, but we sure as hell have hope, and we survived. So after this ceremony, when you finish packing your room, you say goodbye to all your friends and teachers, you go home, you put down your bags, and immediately, somebody who thinks they know better than you leaps on you like a thief in the night and asks if you're ready for the real world. Don't sweat it, because the real world isn't ready for you. Thank you. Thank you.